Well, as we come into this next section, we can't help but revisit some of the previous verses that uh, Peter has given to us. You know, we started reading in verse 20, and I think it is important for us to kind of bounce back there and to look quickly because it informs so much of what we are dealing with here in uh, verses 22 to 25. As we come to verse 20, Peter writes, and he's writing to uh, a bunch of people who are experiencing hardships and persecution, oppression. He's writing to people who are going through a hard time. He's writing to them because they're not sure what's happening. They're not. Uh, they're a little bit um, unaware of of their their status before God. And and Peter has written to them to remind them that they belong to him and 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 they are his people. They are his church. And as we come to chapter two, his emphasis is like, you guys might be confused, but I've made you uh, a holy people. I've made you a, a, a special nation that I've called out for the purpose of worship. And we get a little bit of a a foretaste of that in uh, verse 20. Peter writes, and he says this, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That is Jesus. He was known. He was the firstborn of all creation. That is not to say that he was created, but he existed before Jesus being God. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but, we're told, was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. This is speaking of the glory of the incarnation, the wonder that God would become a man. The person, uh, uh, the, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, who is God, who we are told from the scriptures, who was there at creation, commanding creation. Jesus is there present, but yet decides to come and humble himself, taking the form of a servant, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. Emptying himself out, all that belonged to him, all that, what, that he was deserving of, and making himself in human form, but not only in human form, the the lowest, the form of a servant. Living a perfect life on our behalf, paying for our sin, this, we're told by Peter, happened for the benefit of you, his readers. Now, we're his readers because we're in this present age, and we're on the other side of the cross. And so what he wants us to understand, what he wants us to see is that from eternity past, God had a plan to bring you and I into a wonderful relationship with him, one that blows your mind. You know, I uh, work in social media. I work in, in monitoring uh, different feeds, and that's kind of one aspect of my job. And one of the things that I'm constantly seeing there is there is a whole lot of people who are writing because they want to get in touch with someone who has some level of fame or some level of influence. I think you and I have have seen this. If if you're old school, uh, you know, back in the day, there used to be like a line in outside of the MTV offices in Times Square for TRL, Total Request Live, where they would show like unveil the new videos and there would be like all these fans holding, you know, these... Uh, gigantic, like, neon poster boards that says, like, we love you in sync, and, like, all these, like, you know, bands, and they would be, like, down there, and they would show the camera. That type of, of, of 
uh, excitement about the band being up there and waving to them from the window. Like, that's what they were after. There, there was, in no way did the band, like, ever come down and be like, oh, like, let's shake hands with all these people. And it was like, it was just a window that was like stories up in the air. And there's every, all these fans down there. And now when you see this, this same thing kind of translated over social media, people are constantly writing to celebrities and famous people, hoping that they will be acknowledged. Because they're hoping that they'll be validated. They're hoping for a relationship. They're hoping for, that they'll be recognized. But friends, we have the opportunity to have a relationship with the God of the universe who spoke creation into existence, who commands all things and holds all things together, and without him, nothing continues to exist. The very fact that you are alive, that you are sitting here, that your heart is beating, that breath is coming into your lungs, it's involuntary. You don't get to choose to do it. Jesus keeps you doing it. You're not even in control of your own life. And he wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to know you, to enjoy you. He wants us to enter in to the richness of having access to him. Now, Peter says this Christ was made manifest in the last days for us so that we might enjoy him. We might know him. We might have the opportunity The idea is that we are those same people who are holding up the neon signs, except for like, Jesus is like, yeah, come on. Like, not only are, are, am I going to see your sign, but you're in my family and you're going to come in and we're going to go to dinner and like, you can live with me. Like, it's going to be like an amazing relationship. All that you ever hope to get through other things, other people, the things that seem flashy in life or the things that seem to, to want to make us comfortable or the things that seem natural, those things, they don't end up satisfying. In fact, as we make our way through the text, we see that Peter compares these things to grass and the glory of the grass, the flower. That There are these things that we're on the lookout for that we're like, oh, that would be really great if I could have that. Oh, I really hoped for this. Or I really hope to meet that person. Or I really hope to have that job. Or to go down that career path. Or I really am wishing that I can have this grade so that I can get what I want. But Peter, he exhorts us differently. He says that there is another way. He says that we are made, uh, Christ was made manifest, we're told, in the last times for the sake of you, verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter's emphasis is this. Christ came to save us. He came to redeem us. He came to make us his own. To raise us with him as he is raised. It's through him, we're told, that we are believers in God. Not through our own efforts, not through our own works, but it's through him. And we're given this evidence that God raised him from the dead. And gave him glory. 
Romans tells us that Christ was raised from the dead for our justification. That is to say that his resurrection is brought about by God raising Christ from the dead so as to say, here is the receipt that you have paid. That you have done what you are supposed to do. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't get to have like weekly shopping for myself because my wife does all the shopping. Thankful for that. I'm, it would take me too long. I would be horrible in the grocery store. I don't get to do that shopping, but occasionally when we run out of coffee, I'm the one that usually tries to go out because it's dark and late at night, and I'm like, okay, let's go do this. So I go over to Berkeley Bowl. Now, I don't carry those little tiny mini bags, and I don't really want to pay for a bag because I only have one thing. And what happens when you go to Berkeley Bowl is like you go there, and you have your thing, and, and you, you pay for it, and then they give you this, this orange sticker, which is which be sort of like in the beginning was kind of like the sticker of shame, like, oh, you didn't bring your own bag. But what we realize, what, as, you, as you look at the sticker a little bit more closely, it's like this br- bright sticker and it says, paid. Paid. That sticker there is the receipt, so that way when you walk towards the door, if the security guy is there and he's like, why are you walking out with that? You can be like, paid. I'm justified. I can walk out with this. Because my interaction with the cashier has been validated by this sticker. It says that I am in right standing with the store, with the law. I can walk out. I can exit this knowing that I am accepted before everyone here in the store, before all the security cameras that have been watching me, uh, you know, between the police, between the outside world, and between God. I paid. I've got the sticker. For Jesus, the resurrection is the sticker, is the receipt, it is the thing that says, it is finished, it is done, that Jesus made that confession upon the cross, but it's the resurrection that God says, yeah, you're right, it is finished. It is paid in full, we are brought into his family, it is this guarantee for you and I. And more than that, He's raised him from the dead, but he has given him glory. He has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, Paul tells us in Philippians 2. And that at that name, at the confession of who he is, eventually every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. There will be a confession that Christ is all and is over all. He is Lord over all the things, whether you want to admit it or not. It's just the truth. That he's in command of all the things, all the things that you might be willing to say, okay, well, he can be Lord over that because I'm not really like super attached to that anyways. But the things that you really want to say like, well, you know, I think I'm going to handle that because I'm not sure how he's going to do with that. He's the Lord over that, whether you want to admit it or not. He's in charge of all things. If you think you're in charge, it's an illusion. You're not really in charge. Go ahead, keep your heart beating. You have no control. He's there, ruling, reigning. 
It is this resurrection and exaltation that gives us the hope, Peter tells us. He's raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Because what do we tend to do? We tend to look around and we tend to, to hope in ourselves and to say, okay, well, there's an opportunity over there, or like, this is what I think I should do, or this makes sense, or, you know, oh, I have, I, I'm going to do this, or here's my plan, and here's what I want to do. We put together our, our, our own uh, lives, our, our own schedule. Here's my five-year plan, God, like, you know, make sure it goes according to schedule. The Lord just, like, laughs at that, like, you think that that's your five-year plan? I haven't even guaranteed you're going to be alive in five years. <laughs> you have no control This is why James tells us that we should say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, all things fall under his glory, under his sovereignty. He is in control of all of these things. Now, he says this because it's easy for us to to look around and see the things that are appealing in this life, to see the things that would make it easy for us to move through life. He says this because... It's easy to be walking through a field, through the grass, and say, oh, look, a flower. All of a sudden, you're off your journey. Peter reaches all the way back, we'll see, into the book of Isaiah to emphasize that you shouldn't be distracted with the cares of this life. You shouldn't be distracted with the things that you know for certain will pass away. Those things that are are nice-looking, God created the grass and God created the flower. But yet, he didn't create them as imperishable objects. They fade away. Okay, we should actually get to the text. Verse 22. Peter comes in wanting to emphasize this future hope, this faith that we are to have in God because we belong to him. He starts out, Verse 22, saying this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, Peter comes into this wanting to help us understand a bit of the context of what he has called us to earlier. First, he's told us now, uh, the last thing he's told us is about this, this hope that we have in heaven, that we are to, to look to uh, that day where our faith and hope are in God. Uh, but just before that, he speaks to the conduct that we are to have as Christians. And his emphasis is, be holy as I am holy. This is God's character, and so we are then to have that same character. We are then to live in that same way. If God is holy, his children also ought to pursue holiness. As we talked about on com- uh, at community group, uh, you know, we've rightly said that there's not going to be a time where you're on the earth and you feel like, oh, like I'm, ho- I'm holy. Like we're, we never really arrive in this, but rather it is the state that we are called to live in uh, in order that we might glorify God with our good works, with our, with our actions, that we might be like him in character. And so as we make our way into this text, what Peter's now beginning to emphasize for us is it's not enough to just be holy. Well, you think, okay, well, uh, being set apart, being holy, is, uh, 
is, is important. But God isn't only holy. He's also love. And so he introduces another facet of God's character here. Holiness, holy living, the sanctification is incomplete if, there's not, if it's not being accompanied by love. What do the scriptures tell us? Speak the truth, right? That would be true holiness, pure, harsh, like straight. But it says speak it in love. It's neither speak only love in love or speak only truth. It's speak them together. Truth in love. They accompany one another. Now, this is important because this goes to the flip side of what it means to be uh, on the pursuit of holiness, sanctification. Right? If we trace this out to its ultimate means, some have taken this so seriously as to say, well, you know, the, the way that you can only really achieve this sanctification is uh, to really go off and make sure that you're not in position to be tempted by the world and uh, to experience hardships or difficulties and you need to get to a place where those things aren't in your life. And so, you know, then we have the, the way of people going into like monasteries and being by themselves which is not, is not the point, right? If you go there, then you're just by yourself. You, you might be holy, but you, you can't operate in brotherly love because you don't have any brothers to love. You need that around you. And so he says here, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to have a sincere love of the brothers. It's not just enough to be sanctified and in the process of that, but you have to have a sincere brotherly love. And then there's a double emphasis where he says, again, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So this command to love one another is connected to purification. So both because you have been saved, having your souls purified by obedience to the truth, because you have been brought into the family of God, then you should love like God, but your love has to be like God's love. It would be easy to say like, oh, well, I'm trying to love you, but you would come from a place that is not pure. And to be honest, the majority of the time, that's where our motives are. They're not filtered through the gospel. They are not primarily processed through how the way that we're interacting with each other is how they're on the basis of our natural feelings or our natural state. But we want to operate on the basis of purity of love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. A pure heart. In the scriptures, we're told that purity and holiness are, are akin. They are they're similar to one another. We're told that without holiness, no one can see God. Apart from holiness, you can't see God. Apart from purity, you can't see the Lord. And so it is that when we hear someone say, love from a pure heart it's not saying like oh well make sure like only that you've really kind of cleaned yourself up first but rather 
the purity of heart is helping others see God clearly, pointing each other to Jesus faithfully. When we love one another from a pure heart, it doesn't simply mean that we've gone through a rubric of, okay, what are all the the ways that I might have thought selfishly about this way that I'm going to try to love this person? What are the ways that, uh, you know, I got to go through my checklist? But rather, the primary motive is how can I show God more faithfully? How can I show Jesus? How can I show the gospel more clearly through the scriptures? I'll give you one example. Um, then, Then we'll move on. As we look to the scriptures, we have some sections that talk about ways that Christians ought to lend money toward one another. We ought to lend money towards one another. And one of the ways that we're told is give and expect not to be repaid. If someone asks of you, give, loan money, but don't expect to be repaid. I mean, how much does that reveal the gospel? I think that if someone was asking for us for a loan, we're more likely to say, like, okay, like, I need it back by, like, this specific day. I need it back by this specific time or whatever. You know, we're, we're putting, like, these stipulations and we're treating it as a contract, whereas the scriptures more call it out and say, God has given to you without asking for repayment, knowing that you couldn't repay it. And so give without the expectation of repayment. Now, it not only uh, uses that for the idea of lending money, but it copies and pastes that onto a bunch of different things throughout uh, what it looks like to, to live as a member of the household of faith. Because we're like God in character. Not just in, in word, but also in deed. This comes from his heart, not our heart. We're not to be like the outside society that would be like, not only do you have to repay me, but you have to repay me more because you didn't have the money, so I'm going to make money off of you. Give without the expectation of repayment. Now, that goes straight to the heart of the gospel because that's what Christ did for us. He knew that we could never pay it. He knew that we could never return. And even if we could, all that it would do would put you back in right standing and saying like, oh, you know, I, I did it myself. But Ephesians 2 tells us that we're saved by grace through faith so that we wouldn't be able to boast. So that God would get the glory. So this command is not just rooted in like a practical, like, hey, let's be nice to them because like they might not be able, you know, and we'll give them a leg up. It's not about that. It's not about like, oh, you know, they've really been at a disadvantage for a long time. Like that's, that might be like part of it, but that's not even the heart of it. The heart of it is like God wouldn't ask for it back. It's being like God's character. It's easy to see other reasons why it might be good and other things that you can say like, oh, that makes sense or that would be nice or, but, but the primary point of it is to get to the heart of the gospel. Purity of heart is what we're after. Love one another earnestly 
from a pure heart. It's connected to our purification. You can only do this if you yourself have been purified, we're told. Having purified your souls, you have been converted, you have become a Christian, you've trusted in Christ for salvation. That's what it means there, having purified your souls. Now, that sounds a little bit weird because we just said that God does the work, but now it says like, oh, you purified your souls, like you did it yourself. That's not what he's getting at. He's not making the emphasis to say that you yourself have purified your souls, but rather he says you have done this by your obedience to the truth. Your obedience to the truth. So, Obedience to the truth, we see, results in faith and coming into the family of God. And what the gospel says that we have to respond in is faith. We are justified by faith. And so, if obeying the truth believing the truth of the gospel and obeying that is faith. And the gospel says that we have to operate in faith. Then these things square up. Obeying the gospel results in faith. Obeying the truth, as he spells it out here, is described elsewhere in the New Testament um, as conversion or regeneration Uh, In Romans chapter 15, Paul writes, he says this, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. So Paul's emphasis there is like, Christ has done the work of bringing the Gentiles into the family of God, and they have obeyed by receiving the truth of the gospel. They have trusted in Christ for salvation. It's simply trusting, placing your faith in Christ. And so the work of purifying your souls is not something where you are doing these works in order to make yourself right before God or to justify yourself or to validate uh, your Christian life, but rather purifying your souls is connected simply to trusting in Christ for salvation, obeying the truth of the gospel. Now he says this, we operate in love. We love because these two things. Because we've been purified, we've purified our souls by obeying the truth, but also because we have been born again by our obedience to the truth. We've been born again by the word of God. And so as a Christian community, we should have constant, faithful, pure love for one another. That results, that is motivated by pointing others to Christ and having them enjoy Christ more deeply. And having our souls be most satisfied in pursuing him. Now consider this. It's a, it's, a, it's a hard 
um, thing for us to realize because we're not in the circumstance of this church right here. But Peter is hearing about what's happening in this church. He's hearing that they are wondering, like, what are we doing? Like, are we even a part of the family of God? Are, are like, we're just a bunch of, like, Gentile Christians that are scattered about, uh, that are all over. This letter's a circular letter, so it's going to kind of go to all of them. And they're like, look, like, we're, we're, we're showing up every day, but, like, we don't really know what we're supposed to be doing. Like, we're, we're here, and we're experiencing hardship and oppression from the surrounding culture, and they're persecuting us. Here's what Peter, Peter does, or maybe we'll start with what he doesn't do. He doesn't write, and he doesn't say, I understand that you are experiencing these hardships, these difficulties. And so perhaps maybe a, a, a few of you might want to think about relocating to uh, you know, the outskirts of the city, or maybe you guys can have a commune in there and, and a little place where you guys can meet together, or maybe uh, you, know, you can address it this way, or maybe if you guys get enough money together, the power dynamic of the city will shift, and you'll have the most money, and you guys can control how things are done. He doesn't offer those suggestions in any way. He doesn't come and say, oh, you have hard circumstances? Let me tell you how to make them easier. That's, not, that's like the least of his concerns. What he does, instead of calling them to seek relief, he instead calls them to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Point each other to Christ. Now he says that we ought to do this, verse 23, because you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Now this command that Peter gives that we ought to love one another it's connected, it's rooted in God's saving work. He says that we should do this because we've been born again. This is a mark of his church, that we love one another and we point each other to Jesus. It is connected to his saving work. And he says this, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. What Peter means here is this. God brought his people into his family, not in the typical human way of human means of natural biology, things that pass away, but rather, we were birthed anew through the imperishable Word of God. We are brought about into His family through the truth of the gospel. Now, this is, this is brought about in Peter's vernacular that he's all about. You'll see this as we go through the book continually. Peter is all about, like, imperishable inheritance. He's, he has like this constant contrast. Earlier we saw in, uh, in, in chapter one, again and again, he's like, you have like an inheritance that, it's, you know, that is like imperishable. It's uncorruptible. He has like all these, he just wants to keep contrasting like how secure this uh, future is for believers. And again, he comes here and he says, 
Here we have both seed that is perishable and seed that is imperishable, that will not pass away. He says that it is the Word of God. This heavenly inheritance that we have from believers is imperishable. Elsewhere in the Scriptures, we find that uh, the writers of the New Testament remark upon this specific seed being called the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 5, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Again, there is Paul saying, you can chain me up, but you can't chain the word of God up. Go ahead. It is uh, imperishable. Now, this is an important mark for us to understand because obedience to the truth requires faith. We have to obey the truth of the gospel by trusting in Christ for salvation. But if no one's sharing the gospel, if no one's communicating the truth of the gospel, if as members of the household of faith we aren't reminding each other of the gospel, then we aren't going to respond in faith. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of God. The word of God, the truth of the gospel, points us in the direction of faith. Not in mustering up how you feel and being like, oh yeah, like I'm really excited. That's not faith. But rather, confidence in the evidences of Christ's faithfulness. That's, that's what confidence means. With faith, it's like literally what it comes from in the Latin. Confidence, fide, with faith. We have confidence in what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Now, we are brought into the family of God by the preaching of the gospel, the seed of of God's word. And so when we hear this comparison, when we hear this contrast, Peter is highlighting for us the importance of the word of God, the truth of the gospel, in that we love each other by handling the gospel well. Now, before we get to this next section here, as we look at 24 and 25, I want to flip here and remind us one more time uh, of the context in which we are handling this. And uh, flip over 1 Corinthians 15.
passage is glorious. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As we read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it is a bit of a mirror of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 to 25. That is because Peter here is writing to emphasize that we as the church, the Christian community, we ought to love one another with this love that points to the gospel. Nowhere in here in this section, these couple verses that we've talked about, is the outside world mentioned. Like, they're not mentioned yet. This isn't a part of it. This is talking about us in the church loving each other in a way where we point exclusively to Jesus. We, he'll get to the outside world in, in the book of First Peter. It's coming. But so far, we have been only talking about how we love each other in the church by pointing each other to Jesus. Paul writes the same in First Corinthians chapter 15. He's writing to a church, and he says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, not like outsiders, not like secular world. He's not writing to like the, the Roman government. None of them. First, he's writing to brothers. Secondly, he's saying, like, you've heard this before, and you're going to hear it again, and you're going to hear it again. Paul just keeps writing the same thing again and again and again and again because we are prone to wander, because we always want to walk away from this. And here's what he writes. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, that we need to hear this again and again and again and again and again and again and again. That's why here we only beat one drum. Jesus all the time, the gospel all the time, identity in Christ all the time. Like, that's it. Because that's all Paul did. He just went around. You can read all, this, all of the, the, the books. And he says, here's the principle. Here's identity in Christ. Here's the truth of the gospel. And then he'll get to, like, occasional situations and, like, here's how you apply that. But it's basically the same thing again and again and again. And he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Okay, listen to the different tenses in the states here. I preached to you, right? So that's the first one. They heard. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, which you received, right? Here's the second state. You've received it. You've believed it. You have obedience to the truth, as Peter states it, in which you stand. So now you have to stand in it, reminding yourself that you are a member of the household of faith, that you belong to Christ because he has said you do. He has called you his own in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, he's saying you are in this, but you're not home. You're on the process of sanctification. You're not glorified yet. This isn't to say that your, your salvation is in flux and maybe, you know, you're, you're not going to be saved. This is to say, you're just not in heaven yet. You're not there. You're not glorified. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance, right? First importance. Here it is. What I also received. He's like, I didn't tell you anything but except what I received. And the first importance is this. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then at one time, most of whom, uh, oh, excuse me, then, uh, at, then he appeared to James, sorry, 
Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul gives us this whole status, this whole state. He says, here's, here's the deal. I received the gospel. I didn't preach anything to you other but than the gospel. I proclaimed it to you. You received it. You stand in it. You're being saved by it. Continue. And then he breaks down what the, the gospel is, the truth of the gospel. He specifically calls out as matters of first importance. And then as he, after he finishes this whole section saying, here are all the truths, he applies the gospel to himself. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. I'm the least of the apostles. Unworthy, right? There it is. That's the truth of the gospel. We weren't able to, to save ourselves. He's like, I don't even deserve this. Unworthy to be saved. Unworthy to be an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But then he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He stands in the gospel. He's believed it. He receives it. And now he stands it. He's like, look, I persecuted the church of God, but I am what I am. I receive the truth of the gospel and his grace toward me was not counted in vain. He's like, I'm in it now. And you guys can say, I, I verbally confessed it to you that I was one who persecuted the church of God. I blew it. I went against him. I literally killed those who God was raising up to give uh, you know, life to the church and to speak to them. He's writing to the church, the, probably the friends, like he's probably writing to people who he killed their friends. You would imagine that they would have some resentment and be mad at him about that. You would imagine that they would be upset that, that he prevented the advance of the gospel for so long. He confesses us and says, look, like, that's what it is. And like, if you want to be mad at me, you can be mad at me. But like, I'm standing in it and God's grace is not in vain. He's not going to be swayed by their perception of him. He's not going to be swayed by anything else. He says this then. On the contrary, he's like, I'm not going to let it get to me. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. He's like, I went back out because I know what I've been forgiven of. So my life isn't going to be about me. My life isn't going to be about what I want to do. I'm going to go out and I'm going to serve God with every opportunity, with every breath that is given. He says, though, it was not I. Even in his efforts, he's like, but it was the Lord. It was the Lord who sustained me, who helped me, who empowered me to do this. But it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He's emphasizing the importance of the word of God, of believing the gospel, of us handling the gospel rightly, because we need to handle it with each other rightly. When we have doubts, we need to say, oh no, here's what the truth of the gospel says about you. Here's, here's how you need to see Jesus more clearly. We come back to 1 Peter chapter 1, and now Peter comes and he makes this comparison for us. He's essentially restating verse 23 in a bit of a different way. In verse 23, he has said, You've been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of, imper but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And now he says, 
For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. So he's beginning to quote here from Isaiah chapter 40. Now, in the context of Isaiah chapter 40, um, this is a message that goes to Israel, encouraging them that God will continue his work that he promised he would do, and that he would rescue them from their uh, exile in Babylon. He would, he would uh, free them from that situation. And so the message to them is, is this news that comes... Uh, here in, uh, in verse 25, but the word of the Lord remains forever is this. God keeps his promises. So if you're somebody who is in exile in Babylon and you're like, when are we going to get out of here? We say all flesh is like, like grass and it's glory like the flower of grass. All the things that are around you, all the things in this, in this flourishing empire of Babylon where it's like, oh, they have like these amazing gardens and they have like this crazy empire and you look around and you're just tempted to be like, like maybe, we, maybe we should just settle in here and, and start to enjoy the things. Maybe we should just start worshiping their gods. They get this word that says, don't do that. You're not a part of this community. Don't do this. You don't belong here. You are to be trusting in God's promise and what he told you to do. He says, the grass withers and the flower, or the, and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And so this good news would come to the original hearers in the book of Isaiah, reminding them that God's going to fulfill his promise, that he will keep his word that he will deliver them from exile. And Peter, he lands here in verse 25 telling them this. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. He says, if you thought God's promises could be stopped, if you thought God's faithfulness could be stopped, look at where you're at today. Is Israel... In exile in Babylon? No, they're not. They are free. Not only that, but in the proclamation of the gospel to these people, to Peter's original hearers, he's like, you are the fulfillment that the word of the Lord is enduring, that he is faithful. You're hearing the truth of the gospel proclaimed to you. So you, church, you ought to remind each other of the truth of the gospel. It is our desire to love one another faithfully with brotherly love in our conversations, in our interactions with one another. And if you're, if you're unsure about how to do that, when someone's talking to you and they're sharing their hardship or their experience or they're sharing their difficulty, you flip over and you say, now I would remind you, brother, of the gospel that was preached to you, which you have received, that you now stand in, and in which you are being saved. 
And you say, how do, we, how do we see Jesus more clearly together? How do we exalt him most faithfully? That's where we're going. That's where we're headed. Too often we want to start with the details. Too often we want to start with the nuance without knowing the heart of the matter, without knowing where we're headed. Remind each other, remind each other of the gospel. And in doing so, you will love one another with this true brotherly love. When we do this, we point to Jesus, our souls are satisfied, and Christ is exalted. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness in that you have given us your Son without any expectations. You didn't come and say, well, I will give my life if, you, if a certain number of you promise to, to come into my family. You didn't say, I will give my life if you were able to pay me back over time. But Lord, you handled us as a loving father, knowing that we could never repay, that we could never give back what we have been given. And so we rejoice. We rejoice in your coming, in your incarnation. We rejoice in your work that you have done on our behalf, in rescuing us, in saving us, in making us your own people. We rejoice that you have brought us into your family, and we stand together in the truth of the gospel this morning, knowing that none of us belong on our own merits, none of us belong on the basis of our own efforts. But Lord, we are able to come near because of the blood of Christ, which has cleansed us, has washed us, has made us whiter than snow. And so, Lord, we enter into your presence this morning with thanksgiving. We enter into your courts with praise. And we come before your throne of grace with boldness. Not timid, because we know that we stand in the truth of the gospel. And so, Lord, call us to worship now. Even as we sing these songs that are familiar and remarking upon the season, we want to find the proclamation of worship and praise in them. We want to resonate with the truth of these songs. And we want to give you glory with our lives. And so, Lord, move us to respond now. We love you, Jesus. Amen.